Well, we are going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. Would you then, as a result of that, turn to Mark 14? Mark 14. And we'll be going through verse 51 to verse 65. It's a, such a lengthy passage, but by God's grace, we will go through, through it all. And uh, what a befitting passage we come to this morning for such an event um, as Easter time. Mark 14, starting from verse 51. And it reads, A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest as, and he was sitting with uh, the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him. But their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As humanity stood guilty in the sight of a holy God, having not obeyed his commandments that he demanded of us, and as we have sinned against the holy God, and that we did not, love him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, nor did we love our neighbors as ourselves, which are really the sum and total of all of God's commandments. Every soul was born breathing in selfishness and breathing out pride. 
And we were in a desperate need for one who can perfectly represent us before God. If we were to be saved from God's judgment, if we were to have our guilt and shame removed and to be cast into the bottom of the sea, if we are to be clothed with the robe of righteousness, then we need a perfect substitute. Not just perfect in the sense that he would drink the full cup of God's wrath against our sin. Not just that. But a, sub, but a substitute who would obey all the demands of God's law that were required of us. That is, by drinking the cup, our sins are removed, and by him actively obeying God's law for us, we would have his righteousness transferred into our account, and thus God reckons us perfectly righteous in his sight. We need this substitute, don't we? And praise be to our God, Jesus is our substitute. He is exactly what our utterly corrupt, fallen humanity desperately needs to be saved. He is perfect in every way. And as we looked at him last week in the last passage, and we found that Jesus is perfect in his forbearance, in his fearlessness, in his faithfulness. But you know what? Not only that. Jesus is also perfect in his patience, in his tolerance, in his tenderness. He is perfect. But he's especially perfect in his obedience. And this is what the scripture attests to Jesus and to his sinlessness. 1 Peter 2.19, Jesus is spotless and unblemished. Hebrews 4.15, he is without sin. Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is perfect in his obedience. And in this passage before us this morning, Mark takes us from the bottom of Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, in this chill, cold spring night. And up we go with Mark around the temple and into the very heart of the courtyard of the high priest, where Jesus' trial takes place. And in this narrative, as we observe the demonic activities behind the scene, and this malicious tag team between these evil parties against Jesus. As we see the injustice that takes place the, and feel the slaps and the clenching of the fist. And as we hear the mockeries. Mark wants us to sit as jurors in this trial. And for us all to affirm in our hearts that this Jesus in his trial is truly the innocent, sinless Lamb of God. And this trial is the most unjust and illegal trial in all of human history. In this court case, 
we find that the judges are corrupt. The witnesses are liars. The testimonies are false. The officers are thugs. The accused is blameless. So as we are with Mark still in the garden, and straight after Jesus' arrest, in verse 51, we read, A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free from, of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Who was this person that was running around nude in this cold night? Well, it doesn't say. Many people claim that it was, in fact, um, Mark, the writer of this gospel, it may be true, it may not. Certainly, that was, that was not the point of Mark when he wrote this gospel. His point, however, that he wants to convey that there is a complete forsaking of Jesus. This was the conclusion of the previous narrative, that Jesus marched alone, defenseless, to his illegitimate trial. Now, things to keep in mind before we begin this today's narrative is that Jesus underwent six trials in total. Not one gospel writer uh, wrote about the entirety of the six trials, but when we combine all the four gospels together in the narratives, we get the full picture. Six trials. Trials. The first three were Jewish trials. The second lot were Roman trials. The first three, the first trial was Annas before Annas, then Caiaphas and the high priest and, and the Sanhedrins. And then thirdly, the Sanhedrins at the temple. The second lot of uh, three trials were Roman trials. First it was Pilate. Then Herod, and then Jesus went back again to Pilate. So once again, there were six different trials that Jesus underwent. Now, none of them were legitimate trials. None. None according to the Old Testament laws and, and, and according to the old um, Jewish laws at the time of Jesus. And what we're, going to do, what we're going to do is that as we go through each point of today's outline, we'll identify some breaches of the injustice that took place in those trials. The first point is that the first trial was illegitimate. The first trial was illegitimate. Now, another thing to mention, again, before we go into Gospel of Mark, is that Mark here skips the first trial completely, and he moves straight into the second trial. If we ever want to find out about the first trial that uh, Jesus um, underwent, it would be in John 18. And just let me read to you just a verse in John 18 and verse 13. It says, after they bound Jesus, that they led him to Annas first. For he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that year. So Jesus was first escorted to Annas. Who was Annas? I'm glad you asked in your mind. Well, Annas was appointed as a high priest earlier on 
And uh, he held this office from 6 AD to 15 AD. Later on, it was Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was officially the high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest. Well, if, if Annas wasn't the high priest at the time of Jesus, why was Jesus tried before Annas? I'm glad you asked again. You, you people ask great questions today. <laughs> well, this man was extremely wealthy man. He extortioned as much money as he could get out of those religious Jews at that time. And he had two means to extortion his money. One through imposing um, high fees when people exchanged the Roman currency to the Jewish currency as they entered into the temple. You know, when you go into the temple, you want to give donations, got to be Jewish, not Roman currency, since the Roman currency had the image of the emperor imprinted on the currency. So that was forbidden. So they had to exchange the currency. And at the exchange tables, if you recall, when Jesus turned over these tables, um, Annas would impose high fees on those Jews. Another means by which he extortioned money is that um, at the temple, when they purchased the, um, temple, the temple sacrifices, now he owned the entire business of selling animal sacrifices at the temple. And this enormous amount of money led him to be a very influential man at that time. In fact, it was so he was so influential that the Romans had to remove him because they were threatened by his power. Now, as I dug deeper into different sources, uh, this is what I found. William Hendrickson, a commentator, said of him that he's sly. Annas is sly. It's like snake. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, they described him to be arrogant, ambitious, and greedy man. The Talmud, that's the Jewish tradition. So even the Jews themselves said of Annas to be a serpent. So Annas' influence was so powerful that even long after he lost his office, more than 15 years later, and even now, um, when Jesus is on trial, so Jesus, so 15 years later, he was still called by many Jews as the high priest. You can only have one high priest at any given time, but at that time, they were calling Annas and Caiaphas high priests. Although officially, he was nobody. Nobody. So when the officers brought Jesus to Annas to be tried, Annas didn't really have any official credentials to be any kind of ruler or judge. And so what we can conclude is that Annas was, was not an official judge. No, he was more of a, a mafia godfather, a, a religious ringleader, if you like. And why did he want to try Jesus? Why did he hate him so much and want to crush him? Well, because Jesus was ruining his business. That's all it was. But yet, even if you continue on your own time later on, because of time, we, couldn't, we can't go through this. But even though Annas hated Jesus and wanted to put, uh, put an end to his life, 
he still couldn't find any fault to charge Jesus with a capital punishment. It was illegal. The first trial was illegitimate. So what did Annas do? In John 18, verse 24, it says that Annas, as a result of that, sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas shipped Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, so that Caiaphas could do Annas' dirty work that he could not do himself. And from this point, Mark picks up the story. The curtains are rolled down for trial one, and then now the curtains will be rolled up again for trial two. But even trial two is also illegitimate trial. First trial, illegitimate. That's point number one. Point two, trial two is also illegitimate. So we read now verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, Caiaphas, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Now, who are these people put together? We call them the Sanhedrin. They were called Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was a a group of the most honorable and respectable men in any community, and they will get together and together the Sanhedrin would would function as both judges and jurors at the same time. Um, Every synagogue around Israel had their own um, Sanhedrin, local Sanhedrin. And together the Sanhedrin would vote on the final verdict for all kinds of criminals, um, criminal offenses that would be presented to them. But here, In Mark 14, we don't have any kind of local Sanhedrins. We call these people the great Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin were made up of 70 members, chief priests and the elders and the scribes, 70, led by one high priest. That's Caiaphas. And he's the chairman. He's the president, if you like which adds one more member to the Sanhedrin. So in total, there are 71. By the way, all, whether local or great Sanhedrins, it has to be an an odd number, not an even number, so they can come with with the right verdict and not would be, uh, uh, there wouldn't be uh, a case where it would be an even number and therefore not come up with the right verdict or the final verdict. Now, one more thing that we need to know. I know it's a lot of information, but such is the case in order to, to understand this in context. The Jewish law says that at the public hearing of any court case, it's got to be at the temple and it's got to be during daylight. Why? Well, it's very simple. It's for the same reason why that we hold any court case here in Victoria for, um, and during the daylight, it is to allow public scrutiny to take place, to ensure that any trial is to be executed fairly, and also to, to make it inviting for any defendants to, to come and to give their testimonies or to give their defense. Now, with regards to Jesus' second trial, 
Where was it and what time was it when it was held? In a temple? No, we read further. Verse 54 now. Peter had followed him at a distance. We'll focus on Peter next passage. Okay. But for now, Peter had followed him. Who's him? That's Jesus. Followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of whom? The high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. This courtyard was an extension to the high priest's house. So literally, this trial was a backyard job, if you like. And the time, the time of the trial would have been between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Why? Because the rooster did not crow yet because Peter has not yet denied Jesus. He will deny him later. So it would have been just before 3 a.m. So if you think about it, this is like a corrupt judge grabbing a civilian off the street in the middle of the night, escorting him to the judge's backyard, and then commence a trial on his civilian. And why? So the judge wouldn't be accountable to public scrutiny. He doesn't want to give opportunity for any defendants to come out. How illegal can you get? The second trial is illegitimate. That's the second point. The second trial is illegitimate. But wait, there is more. Because even the case itself is illegitimate. Now, the Jewish law forbids the Sanhedrin from instigating any charges. They were not meant to be there to instigate charges. They were there to be judges over the charges that were presented to them. But what do we read here in verse 55? Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus. So they were not acting as judges here. They were investigating. They didn't want to be judges only. They wanted to be Jesus' prosecutor. And they wanted to be the solicitors to go around finding facts against Jesus. And their goal was absolutely clear. As we read, it says to put him to death. To pull the pin off his life and to send Jesus to his grave. So what seemed externally to be the most religious, the most righteous, the most noble and honorable man in all of Israel, the ones who knew their systematic theologies and their doctrines more than anyone else in Israel, being intimidated by Jesus' authority. Envied Jesus' popularity, feared that they would lose their control over the people. They hated Jesus so much and they wanted to conspire to kill him. And so, what did they do? They started digging dirt, dirt, and they looked around trying to find any evidence to charge Jesus with capital punishment. But all their evil plotting came to no avail. We read, and they were not finding any, nothing. Couldn't find anything to charge Jesus with. They were lousy, try-hard persecutors. 
They were not finding any. Of course, they couldn't find any. I mean, Jesus is a sinless son of God. Philippians 2 verse 8 tells us that about Jesus that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus is the embodiment of God's law. He came to fulfill God's law. How can anybody accuse Jesus of violating the very law that he came for that purpose to obey? But what we have here is the most respected man assembled at an illegitimate time in an illegitimate place to try Jesus for a crime deserving death. But they had a little problem. Because up to this point, in the middle of their trial, they still didn't know what crime to convict Jesus with. Nor did they have any evidence to support their claim. They couldn't. So in the middle of this trial, as they are discussing um, how to convict Jesus, if you would come up to the Mr. Caiaphas, the high priest or the Sanhedrin's, and you ask him, Sanhedrin, can you tell me what evidence do you have so far that leads you to have a warrant to arrest Jesus? Evidence? We don't have an evidence. Well, what's the case? What do you have against him? We don't know yet. Working on it. How wicked. How illegitimate was this case? Not just the court case that was illegitimate. Testimonies. Testimonies were illegitimate as well. So in their desperation, in their desperation, they threw away their chase after real hardcore evidence, and uh, now maybe false ones will work. Just anything to nail Jesus to his coffin. And verse fifty-six, it says, "For many were giving false testimony against him." M- Matthew twenty-six. Verse 59 tells us that it was the Sanhedrin that were these people that were the instigator for this evil plotting. They were the ones who were orchestrating and trying to find people who would falsely testify against Jesus. They wanted to cook up uh, homemade charges to condemn Jesus, willing to lie and fabricate false testimonies against him. But again, we read and it says, but their testimony was not consistent. Now, what does it mean the testimony was not consistent? What's going on here? Um, Well, according to the Old Testament law, um, the law of Moses, in order to protect civilians from uh, false accusations, one cannot be convicted of a crime based on only one witness. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You need to have two or three witnesses. And of course, they are not to come together at the same time, one at a time, of course. And this 
evil religious leaders, it's, it's not they had shortages of these false witnesses. No. Their problem was not um, finding uh, men who are willing to falsely testify against Jesus. No, their problem was to fabricate stories that matched each other. And they couldn't. They couldn't fabricate. So just to help us understand what this would have looked like, Caiaphas would be sitting on, on his throne on his judgment seat, and he would call out, does anybody have any testimony against Jesus? Come on. And then you get so many people will be sitting there, and each one will put his hand up and would say, me, me, pick me. Order in the courtyard. Order in the courtyard. Each one will have his own turn at a time. Let's see a witness. And somebody would stand up and he would say, yeah, 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 I saw Jesus beheading a man in the house somewhere. Ah, oh, right. That's, that's bad, Jesus. Can anybody testify, another witness, just to confirm this? Somebody else would get up and say, yeah, 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 it's true. Um, her name is Nancy and he was drowning her in the lake or something silly, something crazy. Nothing was consistent. They couldn't even lie. Uh, they had every passion. They just lacked the ability. Now, do you know what the Mosaic law says when um, this happens? What should happen to false witnesses? Well, Deuteronomy, you're pretty close. Deuteronomy 19 verse 16 tells us that false witnesses must suffer that same punishment that they hoped that their accusers would get. And again, this was another way to guard against false witnessing in a court of law, to ensure justice takes place. Which meant every one of these false witnesses should have been sentenced to death. Because that is exactly what they wanted for Jesus. They wanted him to be dead. But the Sanhedrins, they, they failed to do justice. It was a free-for-all. All liars are welcome. You have, you have immunity. Don't worry. We're not going to kill you. Just tell us something that will be consistent. See, this was not a a trial of justice. It was a plotting to commit a cold-blooded murder. Trial is illegitimate. The case is illegitimate. The testimony is illegitimate. And what they did next was equally illegitimate, self-incrimination. Back in the Old Testament and during the time of Jesus, it was illegal for anyone to be self-incriminated. In other words, no one would ever uh, be, um, have the right to just to come and say, oh, I murdered somebody. And in the light of him saying, oh, I murdered somebody, then he gets stoned to death. That does not work. You need to have two or three witnesses apart from him, regardless of what he would say. So we come back to the story. And we find that, these people were, by that time, exhausted. They were 
embarrassed to the core. They lost hope almost. And in verse 57, it says, some stood up. Matthew 26, verse 60 tells us they actually found two witnesses. Um, so there were two people that stood up. And they began to give false testimony against him, saying, in verse 58, what is the testimony? It says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. This temple referring to? Herodian temple, right? And um, that's what Jesus said? No, that is not what Jesus said. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus actually said, destroy this temple, referring to his body. And in fact, he was actually saying to those religious leaders, you religious leaders, destroy my body. Pointing to himself, meaning you will kill me. And in three days, I will raise this body from the dead. But they made Jesus out to be a terrorist bomber. There were no bombs in those days. So I have no idea what, uh, how they got that in their mind because they they assumed, they falsely assumed that Jesus was not God. So how in the world that he would destroy that temple that was made up of thousands and tens of thousands of stones and gold and everything under the sun, and then he will build it in three days? They just wanted to twist what Jesus said. And they said, well, we heard him. He's going to bring the whole temple down to the ground on his own, without bombs, just with, a, with an axe or a hammer or something. Really? And in verse 59, it says, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And up to this point, as we follow the narrative, Jesus was utterly silent. Yet somehow, he was still winning the case. Well, you can imagine at that point, frustration, anger, embarrassment. We can't let Jesus go. I mean, imagine if we set him free now and everybody would hear about this. No way. It's our opportunity now. We've been targeting him for three years, we've got to get rid of him now. And so verse 60 says, The high priest, again Caiaphas, stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? Just say something, man. What is this man are testifying against you? Jesus, what do you have to say about yourself? Jesus of Nazareth, come on. Say a word. They want to pin him on, on even word. Even if he said anything right, they just want to pin him on something. There's a time for rebuttal. But look at Jesus. In his glory. In verse 61, 
but he kept silent. Kept. Meaning not a word. It's not that he was silent. He kept silent. And did not answer. Here is our solid rock of ages. Never cracks under even severe pressure. With all the chaos that was going on around him and all the bullets of false accusations fired at him, here stands our Lord with perfect peace inside and utter silence from outside. Unmoved. Uninterrupted and majestic calmness. So here is the harmless, innocent Lamb of God, defenseless while surrounded by savage wolves. And it says, again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, let's cut to the chase, Jesus. Just say a word so that we can hang you on and, 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 and take you to, to your death. And then Caiaphas asked Jesus a question, and please pay attention. It's made up of two parts. And it's the first time that these two parts are actually joined together. He says, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the deliverer? And then the second one, the son of the blessed one. Who's the blessed one? It's God. The son of God. Meaning, and according to the Jews at that time, and you can read that in the Gospel of John, when you say, I am the son of God, meaning you're making yourself equal with God. So to sum it up, are you the Christ and are you God? Jesus could have just kept silent. But you know what? Jesus willingly went to the cross. If he wanted to avoid this trial, he could have avoided that trial. But Jesus didn't want to avoid this trial. So what did Jesus say? I am. I am. What does that mean? I am the Christ and I am God. And then he continues on and he says, you shall see. Now, the word you here in English, unfortunately, doesn't tell you the difference between singular and plural. But in Greek it does. And you here is plural. So now Jesus is addressing the entire Sanhedrin and the officers around. And he was saying to them, you shall see. All of you shall see. All of you shall see what? The son of man sitting at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. So even if they had no idea about who Jesus was at that time, now they do. And Jesus didn't just tell them who he is. He told them what he will do. And this was a a plain warning. That was the only thing that Jesus said to them. He wanted to warn them. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. What does that mean? You will see me sitting on the throne of God and with the power of God, with great glory and great power. And then he said to them, and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a conqueror. This is a king. Every time there's a reference with the clouds of heaven in the Old Testament, it speaks of a coming of a ruler, the judge. God is the ruler. God is the judge. And what Jesus was saying to them in a way that they understood is watch out. You're judging the judge. And the time will come where the table will turn 180 degrees. When I am, I am the Christ, the God of heavens and earth, will come to judge you for judging me. Poor souls, they still didn't get it. They didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have a heart to believe what Jesus has said to them. On the contrary, they overlooked that and they had this kind of sense of relief. There we got something against Jesus. So what does Caiaphas do? It says in verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, oh, what a show, just tearing clothes. By the way, in the Old Testament, it was illegal. It was forbidden for the high priest to tear his clothes. And then he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? So many things he broke, by the way, here and made it illegal because he's not meant to be instigating or manipulating the, the, the decision of those judges and the voting of those judges, but that's exactly what he did. Tore his clothes. Bible says forbidden for the high priest to tear his clothes. And what a show. He never cared about holiness or godliness. They just wanted to kill Jesus. And so he said, you have heard the blasphemy. What's blasphemy? Blasphemy is when a mere man claims to be God. Well, Jesus was not guilty of that. Because Jesus is God. And he backed it up by so many countless miracles to prove that his claim was true. So it was not a blasphemy. It was not. Do you know what the blasphemy was? We'll continue reading. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And this is blasphemy. Blasphemy is when a sinful man condemns to death the sinless God. Blasphemy is when the self-righteous, whitewashed, superficial, hot air balloon, good-for-nothing theologians, when they pick on the most gentle, the most compassionate, the most honest son of God, and then fabricate a homemade court case to destroy him. This is blasphemy. And then what began with false accusations and now ends with physical abuse. So we'll come to the last point. Even their own behavior is illegitimate and very disrespectful, to say the least. So verse 65 Some began to spit at him. That's 
That's just the beginning. <laughs> Spitting is commonly known in the Middle East and is the most degrading, the most detestable uh, act of insult to spit at someone. Now, if this was not enough, then what you find immediately after that is all hell broke loose in Jesus' head. It was madness in this courtyard. And we read, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, prophesy. They were using Jesus as a punching bag. So they blindfolded him, meaning they put a cover on his head, and then they started throwing punches and beating him with their knuckles. These were the most honorable men of all of Israel. The Sanhedrin, they were no more than riffraff, rebels at heart. And they were just exposed right there and then. And then we see after that, the officers joined the party as well. It says the officers received him with slaps in the face. What kind of sick monsters of iniquity were these men? How appalling. Son of God, who came to set people free, was arrested and bound. Jesus, that the scripture tells us is the giver of life, was condemned to death. The all-seeing eyes were blindfolded. The one whose heart oozes with compassion, brutally beaten. The one whose face radiates and shines with dazzling glory, that so much that the angels would not dare to look at his face without covering their eyes, was covered, was punched, and his face was disfigured. The one who created all languages and all communications, the one that the scripture says upholds all things by the word of his power, stood silent before his accusers. The one who came to save people was sentenced to death by people. The lover of mankind was hated by mankind. The one whose heart beats with mercy had his body beaten with no mercy. Angels worship him, but men mocked him. And the one who is the source of all honor was spat upon. Brothers, sisters, reflect on this. How mind-boggling. How could it be that the most loving, the most gentle, the most approachable, the humble, the honorable, the noble, the most excellent Jesus was to be so ill-treated by the best of men? Brother, such were 
some of us. In fact, such were all of us. Before we begin to throw stones at the Sanhedrin, what we looked at is a mirror. And we see through that mirror what our old hearts look like in reality. We're not better than them. Scripture tells us that we are so wicked that in and of ourselves, no one really seeks after God. No one. Had it not been the grace of God to snatch you and me out of this miserable place of darkness and to transform us by his power and give us a new heart. We may have good parents and perhaps a better environment that we may not do that at this stage, maybe, but it doesn't change the reality that our hearts are the same in reality. But I want to tell you something far more compelling, a far more compelling question. Jesus is so powerful. And he's so wise and he's so all-knowing that if he wanted to wiggle his way out of this trial, he could have. He was there willingly. He was there voluntarily. And as the post, I think it was sent by Ralph this morning, it wasn't a conspiracy of the Pharisees that led Jesus to his death. Nor was it Satan behind the scene. It was always the plan of God. He is the one that predetermined the death of Christ and planned it before the foundation of the world. And so if it is indeed, and it is God who planned all this along, and it is for this reason that Jesus came, then why? Why in the world did he allow himself to be so ill-treated this way? Answer? It's not for his sake. It's for the sake of sinners. It's for our sakes. He endured all, hostili all hostilities because he loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. His obedient suffering unlocked the iron bar gates of heaven. It was his blood, brothers and sisters, that lubricated the hinges, if you like, of the eternal doors to the throne of God. He willingly suffered for sinners so that all who would embrace him, believe in him, would not come into judgment but to have eternal life. How loving is Christ? And this trial reveals how glorious our Jesus is in his humility, in his mercy, in his patience. He never even desired to pull a punch. What you see Jesus in that narrative externally is indeed exactly who he is internally in his heart unmoved internally. There was no grudges. He was calm internally. 
peace was ruling and reigning internally. He is such a great savior. And he had no issue with that trial for that one purpose. He wanted to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering. Brothers and sisters, even during that time, there was so much joy in Jesus' heart. Uh, this is what Hebrews 12 tells us. Why? What placed joy in Jesus' heart? For, for there was joy in him because of the reward he knew he was going to receive. Do you know what the reward is going to be for Jesus? Those people that will come to saving faith. We are his rewards. We are his trophies when we believe in him. What a great savior. Who wouldn't want to believe in his savior? To trust this savior? Who wouldn't want to love him? How can we not dedicate all our lives exclusively to praise him? How can we not want to live for him if he lived and died for us? Brothers, we ought to take pride to know that we are his own, exclusively his. And we've got to want to follow him every minute of our lives with whatever sacrifices necessary that we have to make. This is our great Savior. I want to finish with that beautiful verse in Galatians 2.20. When Paul meditated on the, suffer on the suffering of Christ, and he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. During this Easter time, brothers and sisters, and while we have seen this wonderful narrative of Jesus and seeing the glory of the Savior in the way he responded to his enemies, there is nothing I would say to you today or call upon you to do but to give your life completely to him who loved us and gave himself up for us. Why? So that we would be saved. How? Not of works, but of his works. It is his righteousness that counts. And he accomplished all the righteousness required of me and of you to satisfy God's law. He accomplished it all for us. How can we not want to live for him, brothers and sisters? Do you have bitterness in your heart towards another brother? Do you have lack of desire? to fellowship with the brethren? Are you reluctant because you're hindered by a sinner? I urge you, throw away this bitterness. I plead with you, humble yourself. Live for God. Live for God. 
How do you live for God? Humble yourself and throw yourself at the feet of your brethren. Be one together with, with your brothers and sisters for the cause of the gospel. So that we can together expand the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, there's, there's nothing that words can describe when we speak of the agony of Christ. What can we say, Lord? We're so humbled by it. We're so humbled. Father, may this narrative not be just a, a historical story that is spoken of. But let it be something that would penetrate deep in our hearts and that would pierce us deep inside and would transform our lives. Help us to see through this the glory of Christ and his majesty. Help us to see his love and his compassion as he calls us to come deeper into, into his life and, and to be Warmed by his love and his mercy for us. Lord, help us, Lord, to respond by having a grateful heart that is willing to throw away and to even sever our pride for the sake of Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus all the way till we see him again face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.